Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayome Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikaway. Today is Saturday, uh, April 1st, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in this broadcast, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire Report segment. We'll have dispatches on the devastating tornadoes, uh, which have struck several states in the South and Midwest in the United States. Kenyan opposition leader Raila Odinga has filed a lawsuit against the government of William Ruto over an alleged assassination attempt amid demonstrations inside the country. An agreement to reestablish yet another interim government in the Republic of Sudan has been postponed. And the U.S. Department of Justice is taking legal actions against the Norfolk Southern Railway firm uh, for the derailment uh, which destroyed a town in Ohio. In other news, uh, longtime political prisoner and author Mumia Abu-Jamal has been denied uh, in his attempt uh, to have charges dropped against him after 41 years. In the second and third hours, we look back on the 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. We will review uh, several speeches he delivered in California and Washington, D.C., leading up to his murder in Memphis on April 4th of 1968. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Malian group Amadou and Miriam. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 1st, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard the music uh, of Amadou and Maryam uh, from the West African state of Mali. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And uh, these are some of the uh, lead stories uh, in today's Pan-African Newswire. We'll start uh, with the southern United States, where storms that dropped possibly dozens of tornadoes killed at least 21 people in small towns and in big cities across the South and the Midwest tearing a path through Arkansas's capital of Little Rock, collapsing the roof of a packed uh, concert venue in Illinois, and stunning people throughout the region uh, earlier today with damages scope. Confirmed or suspected tornadoes in at least eight states destroyed homes as well as businesses. It splintered trees and laid waste to neighborhoods across a broad swath of the country. The dead included seven in one Tennessee county, four in the small town of Wine, Arkansas, three in Sullivan, Indiana, and four in Illinois. Other deaths uh, from the storms that hit uh, last night into uh, this morning were reported in Alabama and in Mississippi, along one near Little Rock, Arkansas, where city officials said more than 2,600 buildings were in the tornado's path. Stern residents of Wine, a community of about 8,000 people, 50 miles, that's 80 kilometers west of Memphis, Tennessee, woke Saturday uh, to find the high school's roof shredded and its windows blown out. Huge trees lay on the ground, their stumps reduced to nubs, broken walls, windows, and roofs uh, parked homes as well as businesses. Debris and memories of regular life lay scattered inside the damaged shells of homes and shrewn on lawns, clothing, insulation, roofing paper, toys, splintered furniture, and pickup trucks with his windows shattered. You can read uh, these reports in their entirety over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In the East African state of Kenya, the opposition leader, Raila Odinga, has denounced the point-blank firing of a tear gas canister at local journalists during his latest anti-government protest as a, quote, primitive act of intolerance unquote, and he vows to go to court over what he called an attempt on his own life. In an interview with the international press uh, yesterday, the 78-year-old longtime candidate for president spoke more about his grievances over the last year's election, a loss upheld uh, by Kenya's high court, than the rising prices on other painful economic issues affecting Kenya at large, known for his prominent role in the fight for multi-party democracy decades ago, Odinga on Friday warned against attempts by President William Ruto's administration to declare the protest illegal. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, military leaders and pro-democracy forces will delay the signing of an agreement to usher in a civilian government that both sides said in a joint statement issued Earlier today, moment of the signing, uh, which had uh, been scheduled for today, uh, comes as key security reform negotiations between 
the Sudanese Armed Forces and the country's powerful paramilitary rapid support forces appear to have reached a deadlock. Military generals met with pro-democracy leaders uh, earlier today in the capital of Khartoum and agreed to sign the deal on April 6th, said Khalid Omar, a spokesman for the pro-democracy bloc, in a separate statement. The meeting was attended by representatives from the UN, the African Union, and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development in Eastern Africa, who have facilitated talks between the military and uh, the pro-democracy groups. And uh, finally, uh, also in the United States, the federal government has filed a lawsuit against railroad uh, company Southern Norfolk Southern over environmental damage caused by train derailment on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border that spill hazardous chemicals into nearby creeks and rivers. The U.S. Department of Justice said it's seeking to hold the company accountable for, quote, unlawfully polluting the nation's waters and to ensure it pays the full cost of environmental cleanup, unquote, the lawsuit filed on Thursday said. It's asking for fines under the Clean Water Act and for a judgment to hold the railroads accountable for past and future costs. The derailment in early February led to the evacuation of half of the 5,000 residents of East Palestine when responders intentionally burned toxic chemicals in some of the derailed cars to prevent an uncontrolled explosion. Chemicals uh, from the derailed cars and firefighting foam seeped into creeks and rivers near the village, with some eventually ending up in the Ohio River. So far, more than 9 million gallons, 34 million liters of wastewater have been removed from the site and hauled to hazardous waste storage sites in Ohio and other states, according to state officials. Government officials say tests haven't found dangerous levels of chemicals in the air or water in the area, but many residents remain concerned about the long-term health effects. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Entitled One Rainy Wish. And uh, just on yesterday, uh, there was an announcement uh, by uh, the Philadelphia judge uh, Clemens that uh, the latest appeal uh, filed uh, by Mumia Abu Jamal had been denied. And uh, this, of course, uh, represents a continuation of the persecution of Mumia Abu Jamal, the Black Panther Party. And uh, the general black revolutionary movement uh, inside of the United States. And there was a, of course, a statement uh, that was put out uh, by uh, the supporters of uh, Mumia Abu Jamal. 
And it reads that um, today at 4.08 p.m., uh, that was March 31st, uh, 2023, Common Pleas Court Judge Lucretia Clemens denied Mumia Abu-Jamal's request for a new trial. This is simply devastating news, according to the statement that was issued last night. After 43 years in prison, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal has exhausted nearly all of his avenues for release. Actually, it's uh, 41 years uh, since his arrest, uh, a little over 41 years. Uh, Make no mistake, justice is required for Mumia Abu-Jamal that he be given a new trial. The enemy now is time at 68 uh, years old. Mumia is suffering from cardiac disease and has had a double bypass uh, operation and nearly died from lack of treatment for acute hepatitis C several years ago. If you put thick blinders on that block out all reality and rely on procedural minutia for cover, honestly, it is still impossible to avoid the scorchingly blatant racism of trial judge Albert Sable, Assistant District Attorney Joseph McGill, Mayor and former Police Chief Frank Rizzo, District Attorney uh, during Mumia's trial and Ed Rendell, and Ron Castile, DA and former Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice. Judge Clemens stated that she was dismissing the claim of striking black jurors on procedural grounds, dismissing Mumia's claim about the prosecutor excluding black people from the jury without addressing the merits of the claim. One only uh, has to look at the McMahon training tapes that were made uh, by the Philadelphia DA's office, which instructed prosecutors how to strike black jurors. The tapes were made after Mumia's trial, but they document the practice which was the norm in uh, the office. Additionally, there, there's the note that uh, from supposed, quote, eyewitness, unquote, Robert Schobert, that asked Prosecutor McGill after the trial, quote, where's the money that is owed to me, unquote. This note was scrubbed uh, from any filings and buried by the prosecution for four decades nearly. This dramatic, quote, Brady evidence, unquote, previously unavailable to the defense, was dismissed by the judge in her written opinion as not, quote, being material, unquote, meaning it would not have affected the jury's jury's verdict. Underlying this is the whole uh, cell adoption of the credibility determination of the original trial court judge, Albert Sable, quote, I'm going to help them fry the nigger, unquote, Sable was reportedly said. It allows his racist tainted rulings to stand. Judge Clemens also dismissed records from Prosecutor McGill that extensively uh, track and monitor another key witness, Cynthia White, whose pending criminal case cases were all dropped uh, by the prosecution following her testimony. Quote, it's heartbreaking. Mumia is a scholar. He is a good dude who is being framed up by Philadelphia for a murder he did not commit. The judge knows this. The prosecution knows this. And it really saddens me that they won't give my grandfather the freedom he deserves, said Jamal Jr. Uh, There will be uh, rallies. There were rallies in Philadelphia and seven other locations around the country. And uh, we want to uh, listen to the latest commentary, which now is a month old, uh, dated March 3rd, 2023, from Omiya Abu-Jamal, where he discusses the uh, last uh, report from the Pan-African Newswire segment on uh, the derailment of the Norfolk Southern Rail Lines in East Palestine, Ohio, uh, which has uh, devastated that town. Let's listen in. The wages of deregulation.
deregulation. A train races through the cool, wintry air, its wheels churning on iron rails until sparks burst into flames. And in the blink of an eye, a city in western Ohio becomes the latest scene of a railroad chemical disaster. For some of the trains contained vinyl chloride, which erupts into flame, belching dark funnels of poisoned air into an early morning sky. And a local town called Palestine also erupts into fits of fear and fury. They roar, how could this happen? How could it? One way is when politicians, eager to please voters, cut taxes. You know what happened? Deregulation. That other beloved cost cutter, right? Deregulation, that favorite target of so-called conservatives, also cut something else. Safety. The disaster that struck Palestine, Ohio, will give residents heart palpitations and deep worry for generations, at least. How many headaches, cancers, or even unknown diseases may result from this massive chemical spill? No one really knows. Deregulation causes needless disasters. It's as the saying goes, penny wise and pound foolish, and it may yet cause lives. With love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio.
Welcome back, and that was uh, Howling Wolf uh, with the track entitled Asked Her for Water, and she gave me gasoline. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 1st, 2023, and uh, this coming week on April 4th will represent the 55th anniversary of uh, the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, um, 55 years ago, uh, Dr. King uh, had essentially become persona non grata as far as the United States uh, government and uh, the uh, ruling class in this country were concerned due to several factors. His uh, commitment for the elimination of poverty inside the United States, his his valiant fight uh, to end racism, not just uh, color prejudice, but institutional racism, and also uh, against the war in Vietnam, uh, which today is hidden, even by people who profess uh, to be following him, will not mention the Pentagon budget, they will not mention imperialism, they will not mention militarism, and they will not talk about Dr. King's uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam. But we here at the Pan-African Journal and, of course, in other venues will uh, raise these historical issues. Let's listen to a, an address uh, to a press conference delivered in Santa Rita, California, on January 14th of 1968, uh, less than three months prior to his assassination, where Dr. King had visited uh, artist Joanne Baez, Joan Baez and her mother, who were being held in a California prison for their activities in opposition to the draft related to the war in Vietnam. Let's listen uh, to this historic audio file. The following program has been provided by the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project. For more information, call 1-800-735-0230 or log on to pacificaradioarchives.org. This is Colin Edwards. Santa Rita Prison is not a fortress-like structure. There are no high stone walls around it. It's more like a prisoner of war camp, the type you have undoubtedly seen in films like The Iron Horse and Stalag 11, or is it Stalag 15? Anyway, there it is, the acres of long, low wooden huts, barrack-style, spread over the landscape for, it seems, a mile alongside a desolate stretch of freeway, and stretching back about a quarter mile into the countryside. And as you drive by, you see the wooden watchtowers at intervals between the nearest line of huts and the barbed wire fence. I haven't seen anyone manning these towers at the times I've driven by, but they reinforce the prisoner-of-war camp feeling of the place, and mental pictures of Nazi soldiers with machine guns and searchlights ready to gun down prisoners running for the wire come automatically to one. This is over-dramatizing the atmosphere of the place, of course, but I've gathered that what goes on inside sometimes bears parallels with prisoner-of-war camps. 
or perhaps one should say camps for political prisoners in totalitarian states. For prisoners of war do have certain rights guaranteed them under the Geneva Conventions that are not granted to political prisoners. It was to see three of the prisoners at Santa Rita, Joan Baez, her mother, and Ira Sanpo, incarcerated there for 45 days for their non-violent sit-in at the Oakland Induction Center late last month, that a very distinguished visitor appeared on Sunday afternoon, January 14th, a day of heavy, low, gray clouds and scatterings of rain. Despite this rain, a large crowd of sympathizers, a couple of hundred, I'd say, had assembled about 50 yards down the narrow approach road from the entrance gate to greet Dr. Martin Luther King and demonstrate their support for Miss Baez and her fellow prisoners. After spending over an hour inside, Dr. King spoke to the vigilers outside. Let me say how happy I am to see each of you here today, and I want to commend you for your willingness to engage in this vigil and stand in the midst of this rather inclement weather to express your support for all of those who have been arrested as a result of their courageous actions resisting the tragic, unfair, and unjust draft system of our nation. I've just had the opportunity of visiting my very dear friend, uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and uh, our dear friend, Ira Sandpearl. And they all send their greetings and their best wishes to you. And I might say they are in good spirits. You know, when you go to jail for a righteous cause, uh, you can accept the inconveniences of jail with a kind of inner sense of calm and an inner sense of peace. And this is the way they are accepting that experience. They have supported us in a very real way in our struggle for civil rights, our struggle for freedom and human dignity all across the South. And I decided that in a way or rather as an expression of my appreciation for what they are doing for the peace movement and for what they have done for the civil rights movement, I would take time out of my schedule to come out uh, to see them, to visit them and let them know that they have our absolute support. And I might say that I see these two struggles as one struggle. There can be... There can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. Uh, people ask me from time to time, aren't you getting out of your field? Aren't you supposed to be working in civil rights? and they go on to say the two issues are not to be mixed. And my only answer is that I have been working too long and too hard now against segregated uh, public accommodations to end up at this stage of my life segregating my moral concerns. 
For I believe absolutely that justice is indivisible and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And I want to make it very clear that I'm going to continue with all of my might, with all of my energy, and with all of my action to oppose that abominable, evil, unjust war in Vietnam. Now let me say this, I see some very dangerous trends developing in our country, trends of oppression and uh, repression and suppression and I see a definite move on the part of the government to go all out now to silence dissenters and to try to crush the draft resistance movement. Now we cannot allow this to happen and we've got to make it clear. We've got to make it clear that to indict a Dr. Spock or to indict a Bill Coffin and the other courageous souls that have been indicted will mean indicting all of us if they think that this draft resistance movement is going to be stopped. And let us continue to work passionately and unrelentingly to end this cruel and senseless war in Vietnam. I don't have to go through all of the things that this war is doing to corrode the values of our nation. Suffice it to say that the war in Vietnam has all but torn up the Geneva Accord. It has strengthened the military-industrial complex of our nation. It has exacerbated the tensions between continents and races. And the war in Vietnam has placed our country in the position of being against the self-determination of the Vietnamese people. And then it has played havoc with our domestic destinies. And I can never forget the fact that we spend about $500,000 to kill every enemy soldier in Vietnam, and we spend only about $53 a year for every individual who is categorized as poverty-stricken in our so-called war against poverty, which isn't even a good skirmish against poverty. And I say that that is a great need, a need for a revolution of values. And I say to you in conclusion, and I say to you in conclusion that we must continue to stand up and we must continue to follow the dictates of our conscience, even if that means breaking unjust laws. Henry David Thoreau said in his essay on civil disobedience that non-cooperation with evil 
is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And I do not plan to cooperate with evil at any point. Somebody said to me not too long ago, uh, Dr. King, don't you think you're hurting your leadership by taking a stand against the war in Vietnam? Aren't people uh, who once respected you going to lose respect for you? And aren't you hurting the budget of your organization? And I had to look at that person and say, I'm sorry, sir, you don't know me wrong by looking at the budget of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or by taking a Gallup poll of the majority opinion. Ultimately, a genuine leader is not a such a for consensus, but he's a molder of consensus. And on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politics? Vanity asks, the question, is it popular? But conscience asks, the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. And that is where I stand today, and that is where I hope you will continue to stand so that we can speed up the day when justice will roll down like waters all over the world and righteousness like a mighty stream. And we will speed up the day when men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations will not rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. And I close by saying, as we sing it in the old Negro spiritual, I ain't going to study war no more. with Ms. Baez. The visit was mainly to express our support to her for uh, her courage, for her willingness to stand up and face suffering and sacrifice in order to make it clear that the position of our administration is totally wrong in Vietnam, and in order to make it clear that war should cease and people of goodwill must work to bring about an end to war everywhere. Do you anticipate any attempt to get her out before her time is served? Uh, no, they don't know about that. Uh, they are supposed to be getting out on the 2nd of February, I think they said, uh, and they have no knowledge of any attempt to get her out any earlier than that. Dr. King, could you explain uh, what you're quoted as saying, that you're now for escalated nonviolence? What did you mean by that? Well, I made it very clear that uh, the anger of our ghettos uh, is very extensive, the bitterness is very deep, and uh, in order to give that understandable anger a, a kind of creative and constructive channel of expression, we've got to escalate nonviolence to the point that we make it much more militant, much more demanding, and much more insistent, even if it takes on the dimensions of civil disobedience. I feel that uh, nonviolence must now 
uh, be strong enough to be an alternative to riots on the one hand, but also an alternative to, uh, to timid supplications for justice on the other. Dr. King, will you clarify once and for all the reported statement that you have said that Adam Clayton Powell is the only man who can now save the nation? Well, I tell you, there's so much confusion about what Mr. Powell said concerning my statements to him and my visit with him that I'd rather not make a comment until I've talked uh, with him because the press has uh, reported uh, certain things uh, attributed to Mr. Powell that I never said to him. And I don't want to get in a public debate uh, with him about what I said to him. I'd rather talk with him about that privately. Well, in your version, what is your version of this conversation? Did you say anything like that to him? I don't know anything about uh, any statement like that made to Mr. Powell. What did you uh, say, sir? Oh, we talked about many things. I was there to get a few days rest and uh, spent a good deal of my time in Bimini talking with Mr. Powell. I didn't go there for that specific purpose, but after getting there and running into him, I did talk with him a good deal. We talked about the movement. We talked about, and I mean the civil rights movement, we talked about uh, his unjust dismissal from Congress, and I do think that was a grave injustice, not only a slap in the face of Mr. Powell, but to Negro people generally. Uh, but some of the other things that he stated, uh, at least as I have uh, seen them in the press, are things that I never said, and I don't want to uh, uh, say anything about it until I've talked with him, because it could have been misquoted. Did you invite him to speak in Atlanta? Yes, we did talk about that. I, when he told me he was coming to California, uh, I mentioned to him that it would be a good thing for him to stop and preach in my pulpit in Atlanta, but we didn't get a chance to get back to that uh, so that uh, it didn't work out. Um, King. Sins. That was the reason for coming to Bimini, that you had pressed nonviolence past the breaking point and uh, uh, you had alienated the masses, the black masses. Well, there again, I wouldn't want to get in a debate about this. I did not go to Bimini to confess any sins. I went to get some much-needed rest that the doctor demanded that I get, and I just ran into him in the process. I am more committed to nonviolence than I have ever been in my life because I think it's the only answer to this very difficult problem. Uh, I have uh, seen, seen statements where Mr. Powell said I was ready to discard nonviolence, and I don't know where in the world he could have gotten that impression. As far as alienating the masses of Negro people, I think we would have to look at uh, what is happening and uh, face the fact that polls reveal uh, both the Harris poll and a recent poll by Fortune magazine that from 88 to 90 percent of the Negro people of America feel that my approach to the problem is the best answer. Fortune just came out last week where 88 percent of the people felt that my approach was the best approach in dealing with the problem and 92 said they trusted my leadership more than anybody else. So I think that would be the answer rather than saying that I've alienated the masses of people. Dr. Dr. King. I'm going right back to Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> I'll be there in a two-day workshop with my staff and give them their marching orders, so to speak, to go into 15 communities where we will be mobilizing people by the thousands for massive mobilization in Washington on the question of jobs and income 
and we plan, plan to begin in April. But we will be meeting for two days, tomorrow and Tuesday, going through our whole program and techniques of organization and action so that they can move into these communities and get to work. Well, we're going to start out with a core group of 3,000, and we're going to spend at least two months carrying them through the discipline of nonviolence. We feel that if you can get the initial group committed to uh, tactical nonviolence at least, nonviolence can be as contagious as violence. The main thing is to get your core group committed, and this is why we're going to spend at least two months training them in the discipline of nonviolence. How long will you stay in Washington, D.C., sir? Well, we're going to stay until something is done about these conditions, these intolerable conditions. We're going to have certain specific demands, which we're working on now, and we're going to stay in Washington until we get an answer that we consider a meaningful, good-faith, forthright answer to deal with these problems. Do you think there will be violence in Chicago this summer during the Democratic Convention there? I can't say. Uh, there are groups speaking of having demonstrations around the convention, which I think is a good idea, uh, but I haven't had a chance to meet with any of the groups so far, and uh, I would hope that the, the, the demonstrations will be large, numerically strong, in order to be effective, but I would also hope that they would be nonviolent in character. Do you intend to make a statement about uh, Mr. Harris uh, the, of Stanford, who intends to uh, uh, refuse to be inducted in the draft Wednesday, uh, uh, Dr. King? I'm not aware of that. I, I would have to look into that. Dr. Is he a student? Or a yeah, he was a yeah, student by the president of Stanford, and he resigned to organize a group that I was telling you about the resistance. Yeah, oh, I see. Cooperative selective service. Well, certainly I always support this kind of act of conscience I have strongly uh, endorsed. Uh, I have strongly encouraged young men who come to me for advice uh, to refuse to be drafted and be conscientious objectors if they feel that this war is unjust as I happen to feel. What was the reaction of the people inside the prison you mean uh, Ms. Baez? Or? Did you, you talk to Ms. Baez? Yes, I talked to both uh, Ms. Baez and Mrs. Baez's mother, and to Joan, uh, I mean Ira Sanford. And as I said, they uh, their spirits are very high. They feel that they are where they David Harris is joining Dr. King here now. I do not feel that they are doing anything Consequently, they feel that the jail experience is just an expression of our witness. They made that very clear. Against the wall. Will they join you in Washington? Well, I'm sure they will. They've already been in some discussions with us on it, and I'm sure we'll have that support both morally and physically in Washington. I'm sorry, we had a meeting in... Just David Harris. Oh, this is Mr. Harris. So glad to meet you. Oh, yes. You could make it Wednesday morning if you're still out here. Oh, I'm so sorry. We've got to leave shortly for Atlanta. I have a two-day meeting there. But you know I'll be with you and my moral support and, and my concern. And I appreciate your courage. All right. Give my love to everyone in Atlanta. Wow. Uh, you know Bob King. Brown there at yeah. uh, Stanford? He's a very good friend of mine. He's done Mr. Keon, good things. Mr. would you advise me to uh, bear my draft card? I feel that if you, what do you feel about the war in Vietnam, the war in general? 
Well, I feel that you should definitely, if you feel that it's unjust, that you should definitely refuse to serve. And, and, and I think Dr. that's King, just before you leave, only following would you like to hold an old friend? friend? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. I didn't know. I didn't know it was here. Glad to see you. This is the groundswell. Yes, I know. This is a great groundswell of sentiment for you to run. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't get that question in. Dr. King has to leave. He's gotten into the car and is now driving away. But he did meet David Harris and he held the Hiroshima peace talk. That informal press conference got rather far away from the object of the vigil and of Dr. King's visit, that is, moral support for the pacifists held in Santa Rita. So let me bring you now a recording I made earlier that afternoon with Paula Bluder, one of the many people, beside Dr. King, who went in hoping to see friends among the imprisoned anti-war demonstrators. What's the situation? Is everyone able to uh, see visitors? Uh, on the women's side, the visits are going as normal. But those of us who went to visit people on the men's side stood in line for an hour and then were finally told that the male demonstrators would not be allowed visitors today. Not even those on the approved list? That's correct, that nobody would. In actual fact, about three or four people did get in, uh, apparently by mistake, when they got the cards uh, confused. But their, their official answer, if there was one, was that the people who really have to decide this aren't here today, but that the men haven't really been very cooperative, and so we're not going to let them have their visitors today. So they were punished today, in a way? I don't know. Uh, yeah, they were really restricted from this privilege of receiving visitors. Well, they haven't had uh, any visiting privileges at all before, but... When the main portion of the demonstrators were taken out, finished their sentences, they moved the men who were left into Greystone, which is the maximum security area, in which men traditionally get regular mail privileges and visiting privileges. They're simply locked up two in a cell all the time. That all the demonstrators who remain now are in Greystone, are they then? I think that Including that's true. Including Mr. Sanpo. Yes, that's true. I know I was in, and I think that all of the demonstrators, with perhaps one or two exceptions, were moved into the maximum security area. That was Paula Bluda outside the entrance gate to Santa Rita, Sunday afternoon, January 14th. And this is Colin Edwards. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from January 14th, 1968, in Santa Rita, California. Uh, during the time that uh, Joan Baez, her mother, and others were being held uh, for demonstrating against the draft during the Vietnam War. And uh, that same uh, day, Dr. King flew to Atlanta for a staff meeting on his birthday and the following day. And some two months later, on March 16th of 1968, Dr. King returned uh, to uh, California. He spoke in Los Angeles. He was introduced uh, by... African-American novelist, essayist, playwright, and public intellectual James Baldwin. Let's listen to uh, his address on March 16, 1968, in Los Angeles, California. I didn't know I was going to talk, really, you know, and um, I'm not going to talk very long. Um, what, that, what can I say? 
The man who um, we are here to, to talk to, who will talk to us, that is Martin Luther King. Um, I think it's very important to remember that this moment in 1968 is a kind of combination of things that began in this country quite a long time ago, and specifically speaking, 1954, with the Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in the schools, and in 1957, when um, Martin was thrown that ball in Montgomery, Alabama, when Rosa Parks refused to stand up because her feet hurt. Now, we watched in this 11 years, in this 13 years, depending on the point of view, in this country, um, a terrible descent. What Rosa Parks was saying in Montgomery in 1956, and what those Negroes were saying when they were marched for 389 days, the country did not want to hear and did not hear. And as time rolled on, and kids, including people like Stokely Carmichael, were being beaten with chains, thrown into jail, marching up and down those dusty highways, trying to change the conscience of this country. Still nobody heard, and nobody really cared. And Paul Martin spent most of his time in and out of jail, as all of us know, trying to redeem what we claim we live by, the principle of love your neighbor, the principle of if it happens to you, it's happening to me. The principle John Donne talked about, you know, when he said that any man's death diminishes me. But in this country, race and Christianity and power are so tied together in self-interest, what one takes is self-interest, that no one heard it. It's only now that people are beginning to suspect that something terrified has hap ter terrifying has happened and with our consent, because we do know that we cannot fight a civil war, which is what this ferment is about, because I am your brother. I was born here. My father's and my father's blood is in this soil. And nothing will drive me from this country. It also belongs to me. You cannot fight a civil war and a global war, too, at the same time. And especially at both are predicated on the same principle. And I'm not now accusing the Americans of being wicked. I'm accusing us of having allowed ourselves to be brainwashed into a state of ignorance which allows us to forget that the peasant in Saigon and the peasant in Detroit are the same people. And what we don't know about the peasant in Saigon is what we don't know about Sambo here and that has destroyed the American sense of reality. And I suppose what we're here to do tonight is to begin to correct that. Are people who can believe that I was happy on the levee picking cotton, or happy in the mines digging coal, and giving all this away to other people for their wealth, and unable to protect my house, my woman, my children, are people who can believe that I did this out of um, love for other people and that I was happy doing it and that all those songs and dances I learned while I was doing it meant that I was happy. 
can believe anything. And I'm afraid that the people who claim to represent us in Washington these days, from the president on down, do believe that. And do believe, as they believe so long, that they have the right to tell me how to live. And are and are unable to begin to suspect that other people, Sambo, for example, can teach us a great deal about how to live. That's all I have to say, really. I think that the most hopeful thing that is happening in this country now is that finally, cities being blown up, the isolation of black and white being more severe than it's ever been before, the great, great gap between all of us in this country, all over this country, and the fact that the government does not in any way whatever respond to what the people feel, is finally forcing all of us to realize that the life of this country is in our hands. It is not as it was thought of ten years ago when Martin and those kids were marching up and down those highways, a Negro problem or a civil rights problem. What it is for all Americans now and I mean this literally from the very bottom of my soul. It is now a matter of life or death. And it's up to us. Thank you. Thank you very kindly for your heartwarming applause. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here and to see each of you out this evening and to see you here in such large numbers. I'm so happy to have the opportunity of hearing uh, these eloquent statements this evening. I've been speaking, I think this is about my fourth speech today, so I have about spoken out. So since you won't hear much from me, you have already heard some very excellent statements, and I want to thank all of those who have preceded me for what they have said. Now, I'm going to try to be very brief, and I can assure you that brevity is a magnificent accomplishment for the Baptist preacher. <laughs> and since I have two sermons to preach in uh, Los Angeles tomorrow morning, uh, I can assure you that I'll hold the lengthy message until that time. But I do want to thank you for your presence, and I think your presence is indicative of the fact that you are concerned about the great problems that we face uh, in our nation and all over the world. We have just heard from uh, Marlon Brando, that these are confusing times. And I don't think anyone would uh, disagree with that. We are faced with a situation where we find restlessness among the poor and discontent among the affluent. And for some reason, it seems that this uh, mammoth uh, ship of state is not moving toward new and more secure shores, but toward old destructive rocks. 
it seems somehow that things are mixed up in our country. We have confused policies, confused priorities, and indeed confused purposes. I remember so well that President Johnson raised a question uh, some weeks ago when he was giving his State of the Union address. He talked of all of the beautiful television sets that we have over the nation. In fact, he gave the number, about 70 or 80 million. He talked about uh, the beautiful automobiles and and the massive expressways that will hold our automobiles up and keep them flowing. He talked about the number of automobiles, new automobiles that come out every year. And he said after that, yet that is questioning in the land. That is a strange restlessness. <laughs> and I guess uh, he raised the question because uh, he didn't quite know what was wrong. <laughs> well, there is something radically wrong. And I suspect it is that in all too many instances we have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. We have maximized the minimum and minimize the maximum. And so we've ended up with guided missiles and misguided men. And I guess that's the basis of the questioning and the restlessness facing uh, this generation. Our nation is in a mess. The world is in a mess. Now the question is, what do we do? And I must confess that I have uh, no pretense to omniscience. I don't know everything, and the answers are hard to find today uh, because of the great ambiguities of life and history. But we have to do something. Marlon Brando also mentioned the riot report, the Kerner report, that came out a few days ago. And it said some things to us that we cannot ignore. Some of us have been saying these things all along, but uh, nobody paid much attention to them. Now, maybe after they have now been said by a presidential commission, and now that these things have the halo of respectability about them, maybe some people will listen. But in gloomy and realistic Terms That report pointed out that our nation is moving toward two societies, one white and one black, separate and unequal. And the fact is that with this kind of move taking place, hatreds are deeper, tensions are greater, misunderstanding will be wider. But the commission report didn't stop that. It brought out another thing that is often painful to hear, and yet it must be heard if 
the problems that we face in our nation are to be solved. And that is the fact that racism is still at the center of our nation. We must honestly face the fact that America is a racist society. And we must see racism for what it is. It is a myth of an inferior people. It is a tragic notion that one group has all of the worth and uh, all of the knowledge, all of the significance, all of the purity. And another group has all of the inferiority, the worthlessness, and the impurity. And whenever racism is a basic philosophy, whether it is expressed overtly or whether it is subconsciously or latently held, it always brings into being an absolute disrespect for human personality. Now, the first thing that must be on the agenda of our nation is to get rid of racism in all of its dimensions. And it means that white America will have to do something positively, affirmatively, and meaningfully in order to bring all of God's children into the mainstream of the life of this nation. It cannot be done short of something massive. And it means that those who have not known the pathology of the ghetto will have to somehow take that empathetic journey and join hands with those who have been denied and who have been hurt and who have been exploited for so many years. Massive programs are needed. And that means billions of dollars. And the question is whether the affluent part of America is willing to make the sacrifice so that everybody will be able to live a creative life. I was saying earlier this afternoon to a group that sometimes the bootstrap philosophy can be exaggerated. Certainly, people should try desperately to lift themselves by their own bootstraps. But we must always understand that this cannot be an absolutistic philosophy. There's only so much that anybody can do. I was on a plane the other day, and a man started talking with me, and he said, uh, the thing about your people is that they don't do anything for themselves. And he went on to say that all of the other ethnic groups have come to America and they face problems just like your people, and yet they lifted themselves by their own bootstraps. 
And I looked at him and tried to talk with him in understanding terms. And I said, you know, it doesn't help the Negro for insensitive, unfeeling white people to say that other ethnic groups who have been in this country 100 or 150 years and who came voluntarily have gotten ahead of him and he's been here almost 350 years and he was brought here involuntarily in chains. And I went on to say to him that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. And then I went on to bring out to him that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. And the fact is that when his color was made a stigma, that brought about a great sense of depression. There was no way to change it. And even linguistics and semantics conspired to make the Negro feel that he was nobody. If you open Roger's thesaurus, you will find there are some 120 synonyms for black. And virtually all of them represent something low, degrading, nasty, smut, dirty. You'll find about 130 synonyms for white. Almost everyone represents something high, pure, chaste, noble. And in a real sense, our children have so often been taught day in and day out 120 ways to feel that they are inferior, and whites have been taught 130 ways to feel that they are superior. And so a uh, white lie in our society is a little better than a black lie. If somebody goes... If somebody goes wrong in the family, uh, we don't call them a white sheep. We call them a black sheep. If we get uh, mixed up in other ways with the law, we don't call it uh, white male. We call it black male. Uh, we don't whiteball people. We blackball them. Now, this sounds a bit humorous, but it is true, and one can see what happened after generations of oppression and denial and a feeling that was developed because the color was made a stigma that you are nobody. And so many Negro boys and girls grew up feeling this, that they didn't have any dignity and any worth. I went out a few months ago to a program where my son and daughter were appearing they are attending an integrated school in Atlanta, and they were the first Negro kids to go to this particular school. And they had a program that night entitled Music That Made America Great. And both my son, my oldest son, my oldest daughter were in the, in, in the choir, and they were singing the music that made America great. And I listened to the music, and they had the music of uh, various ethnic groups, beautiful music. And then I was waiting to hear some other music that I knew was great, the most original music on American soil, some of the most beautiful music that has ever come forth. Sometimes it emerges in sorrow songs. 
But it has some gentle sighings and glad thunders at times that can touch the soul, and it gave people hope. It lifted them. Great music. And I waited for it. And I never will forget that that concert came to an end, and there was not the singing of one Negro spiritual, or none of the music that has come into being out of the black people and out of the suffering and the agony of the black people of this country. Instead of that, the program ended with the singing of Dixie, and I looked at my son and my daughter having to end the program singing Dixie, the music that made America great. And I sat there and all but wept within. And I said to myself, how can they ever feel that they are somebody if they feel that they have no heritage, if they feel that they've done nothing or given nothing to the life of the world and to history? And how can these white students ever get rid of their prejudices and their feelings of inferiority or superiority until they know these things? And somehow we will never have an integrated society until we see these things, until we come to see that integration is not a problem but an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. And these things don't always get across. I was trying in my little way to get this over to that man who didn't understand this. And I had to finally tell him another thing that is often overlooked. I had to say to him that nobody, no group has totally lifted itself by its own bootstraps. I reminded him of the fact that in 1863 a document was signed by Abraham Lincoln which was to free the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery. But it didn't give him any land to make that freedom meaningful. You know, it was something like keeping a man in prison for many, many years and suddenly discovering that he is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted and then just going up to him saying, now you are free, but you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to get any clothes to put on his back, and nothing to get on his feet in life again. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this, but yet this is exactly what America did to the black man. It simply said, you are free. And by the thousands and millions, four million to be exact, they stood there penniless, illiterate, not knowing where to go and what to do. And the irony of it all is that at that same time, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. It provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. It provided later on low interest rates so that they could mechanize their farms. And today millions of these people, or thousands of them at least, being paid millions of dollars a year in federal subsidies not to farm. Senator Eastland, whom you may know, 
gets about $125,000 a year not to farm on various sections of his plantation in Mississippi. And yet these are the very people who tell the black people of America that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. Somewhere we must come to see that there is a massive job to be done and it cannot be done without massive concern and without an understanding that that is a great deal of repentance that must take place. Now we in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference are still trying. The job is often difficult and I can say to you that it is terribly frustrating. Often we all feel that we are struggling in a situation where the problem is basic, basically insoluble. And yet, in order to live, you've got to maintain hope. You've got to go on in spite of. You've got to have that something that the existential philosophers call the courage to be. And so we're trying to go on in spite of. And as we go on, we need the support of all people of goodwill. The problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. Now, I'm not sure if we have that many consciences left. Too many have gone to sleep. But there are some left. And we've got to be that something that Arnold Tornby, the historian, refers to as a creative minority, ready to do battle for the sacred, vital, valid issues of life, ready to do battle for the principles of justice and goodwill and peace and brotherhood. There are a lot of poor people in our nation. We've seen them in various ways, but so often we don't allow ourselves to see them. And therefore they become invisible. The invisible poor. I would not fool you when I say that I've been in the Delta of Mississippi. And I've been in the little shacks of people who earn less than $400 a year. I wouldn't be fooling you if I told you that I've been through the slums of Chicago. I lived in one. I've been through the slums of Cleveland. I lived there for about six months last year. And I would not be telling you an untruth. And I say to you that I've seen young Negro men and women not earning enough money, and their parents not earning enough money, to begin to function in the mainstream of life. I've seen the lead poisoning in their houses. I've seen the rats and I've seen the roaches. I've seen them. Because they didn't get much sleep that night, they had to stay awake to keep the rats away from their children. I've seen these things with my own eyes. And sometimes out of despair, out of agony and out of the aching anguish of their daily lives. They try to forget it all and they try to escape. Sometimes they 
turn out of humiliation to dope addiction, alcoholism, not wanting to face it. Sometimes a father will end up uh, leaving his family because the welfare law says that a family can't get welfare if there's an able-bodied man in the house. And here he is unemployed, not able to get a job, but he's in the house. And so for humanitarian reasons, he ends up deserting the family so that the children can get something to eat. I've seen these things happen. Now the job facing the nation today is to get rid of poverty. We're the richest nation in the history of the world. Our national gross product this year is about $800 billion. That is what it is, the richest nation in the history of the world. It wouldn't take much to do what I'm talking about. It wouldn't take a great percentage of that national gross product to do what I'm talking about. If the haves are willing to somehow join hands with the have-nots and armed with compassionate traveler's checks, journey into that other country of their brother's hurt and denial and neglect, it wouldn't take that much. We've done it before. We talk in Congress about rewarding the rioters. And I've heard congressmen standing up saying they aren't going to reward the rioters. And I think of the fact that we developed a Marshall Plan after Hitler had destroyed a great deal of Europe. We built it back up. We built a great deal of Germany back up. And nobody said you are rewarding the Nazis. And that is something shameful about a nation with people who have lived in it all of these years and because in anger and in moments of understandable bitterness they exploded into violence and the only response is to call for a day of prayer and the appointment of a commission and then the president won't even say a kind word about his own commission's report. It is time now for something positive to take place. And this is why we're going to have a campaign in Washington. This is why we're going with poor people. I don't know what we'll be able to do in Washington. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. I know we've got to take the inchoate rage of the ghetto and transform it into a constructive and creative force. It is not enough for an oppressed people to be angry because anger is not a program. It is necessary to unite and organize so that that anger can be transformed into a creative and constructive force. And this is what we are trying to do in our poor people's campaign in Washington, taking the power of direct action, keeping this issue before the attention of the nation, and developing a movement that is dramatic and attention-getting so that for at least 60 days, nobody in this country can overlook the fact that there are poor people around. And we solicit your support as we go to Washington, not to beg, but to demand jobs or income now. Now, there's one other thing.
one other thing that I'd like to say, and that is we can't have a campaign like this in Washington without recognizing the fact that as long as the war in Vietnam is taking place, we cannot seriously address ourselves to the great problems and the blight and the despair and the slum conditions of our cities. And that this is why I have been determined to keep these two issues together. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. And I had watched that war in Vietnam, and I came to see that I could no longer be silent about it. And our nation is committing a grave crime, and I'm convinced if we, the people of goodwill, don't unite and keep the pressure on, and demand an end to that war in Vietnam that the curtain of doom may well come down on American civilization. The soul of our nation is being lost. Our image is terribly scarred. We are morally and politically isolated all over the world. And there isn't a single ally former ally in terms of a major nation in the world that would dare send a troop to Vietnam. Not only are we morally and politically isolated in the world, we are playing havoc with our domestic destinies. Not only that, we are saying to the world that we are a terribly arrogant nation. Senator Fulbright calls it the arrogance of power. And we are arrogant in feeling that we have everything to teach every other nation and nothing to learn about them and learn from them. We are arrogant in feeling that uh, we are fighting for the rights, in quotes, of another people, and we won't put our own house in order. We are arrogant in sending young black men and white men to fight in brutal solidarity on the battlefields of Vietnam. And yet when they come back home, it is doubtful that they'll be able to live together on the same block. These are the facts of life. But not only that. The longer we stay in the war in Vietnam, the closer and closer we push the whole, the whole human race to destruction. So we must oppose this war. We must oppose it because it's evil, it's unjust, it's inhuman, and because it can destroy everybody. There are those who say to me, you should stick to civil rights and don't mix these issues, and I always have to say that it would be rather absurd for me to be working for integrated housing and integrated schools and not be concerned about the survival of a world in which to integrate. 
And I think we've got to see that the question now is the survival of mankind. John Fitzgerald Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. This is where we are today. And so let us continue to stand up for peace and let us continue to stand up for freedom and justice. Let me say in conclusion that even though our struggle is much more difficult now, and it's more difficult because it's going to cost something. It's going to cost billions of dollars. As I said earlier today, it's easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to rat eradicate slums. It's easier to guarantee the right to vote than it is to guarantee a guaranteed annual income or to create jobs. And so things are more difficult now. And I must honestly confess that I get uh, or go through those moments of disappointment when I have to recognize the fact that there aren't enough white persons in our country who are willing to cherish democratic principles over privilege. But I'm grateful to God that some are left and I say to you that our goal is freedom. I believe we're going to get there, however difficult it is. And I believe we're going to get there because however much she strays away from it, the goal of America is freedom. And our destiny is tied up with the destiny of America, abused and scorned though we may be as a people, our destinies are tied together. Before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth, we were here. Before Jefferson etched across the pages of history, the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. And for more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters in the midst of the most humiliating and exploitative conditions, and yet out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to grow and develop. And if the inexpressible cruelties of slavery couldn't stop us, the opposition that we now face, including the so-called white backlash, will surely fail. We're going to win our freedom. We're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of the Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demands. And so together we will work until we make America one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in Los Angeles on March the 16th of 1968, uh, some three weeks um, prior uh, to his martyrdom. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal uh, for this week. 
never liked nobody that's been mean to me. I've got a heart full of stone, and I hate the misery. Then you came along into my life, destroying me more, mounting up the toil and strife. But I'm a fool Uh, with the track entitled I'm a Fool for You and you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, April 1st, uh, 2023 Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit and uh, we're paying tribute uh, to uh, the 55th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, It took place on Thursday, April 4th of 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, just four days uh, prior to this uh, fateful event, on Sunday, uh, March 31st, uh, 1968, uh, Dr. King uh, delivered uh, perhaps his last sermon uh, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. We're going to play excerpts uh, from that sermon. Let's listen in. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this morning and to have the opportunity of standing in this very great and significant pulpit. It is always a rich and rewarding experience to 
take a, a brief break from our day-to-day -day demands in the struggle for freedom and human dignity and discuss the issues involved in that struggle with concerned friends of goodwill all over our nation. And certainly it is always a deep and meaningful experience to be in a worship service. And so, for many reasons, I'm happy to be here today. I would like to use as a subject from which to preach this morning, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. The text for the morning is found in the book of Revelation. There are two passages there that I would like to quote. It's in the 16th chapter of that book. Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. I'm sure that most of you have read that arresting little story from the pen of Washington Irving, entitled Rip Van Winkle. The one thing that we usually remember about the story is that Rip Van Winkle slept 20 years. But that is another a point in that little story that is almost always completely overlooked. It was a sign in the end from which Rip went up in the mountain for his long sleep. When Rip Van Winkle went up in the mountain, the sign had a picture of King George III of England. When he came down, 20 years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington, the first President of the United States. And Rip Van Winkle looked up at the picture of George Washington, but in looking at the picture he was amazed. He was completely lost. He knew not who he was. And this reveals to us that the most striking thing about the story of Rip Van Winkle is not merely that Rip uh, slept 20 years, but that he slept through a revolution while he was peacefully snoring up in the mountains. A revolution was taking place that at points would change the course of history. And Rip knew nothing about it. He was asleep. Yes, he slept through a revolution. One of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living amid a great period of social change. 
And yet they failed to develop the new attitudes, the new mental responses that the new situation demands. And they end up sleeping through a revolution. Now, there can be no gainsaying of the fact that the great revolution has taken place in the world today in the sense it is a triple revolution. That is a technological revolution with the impact of automation and cybernation. Then that is a revolution in weaponry with the emergence of atomic and nuclear weapons of warfare. Then that is a human rights revolution with the freedom explosion that has taken place all over the world. Yes, we do live in a period where changes are taking place, and that is still a voice crying through the vista of time, saying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. Now, whenever anything new comes into history, it brings with it new challenges and new opportunities. And I would like to deal with the challenges that we face today as a result of this triple revolution that has taken place in the world today. First, we are challenged to develop a world perspective. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And anyone who feels that he can live alone is sleeping through a revolution. The world in which we live is geographically one. The challenge that we face today is to make it one in terms of brotherhood. Now, it's true that the geographical oneness of this age has coming to be in to a large extent through modern man's scientific ingenuity. Modern man, through his scientific genius, has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that once took weeks and even months. All of this tells us that our world is a neighborhood. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood and yet, we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow and in some way we've got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. 
for some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No man is an island in time itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. And he goes on toward the end to say, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We must see this, believe this, and live by it. If we are to remain awake through a great revolution. Secondly, we are challenged to eradicate the last vestiges of racial injustice from our nation. I must say this morning that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. It is an unhappy truth that racism is a way of life for the vast majority of white Americans spoken and unspoken, acknowledged and denied, subtle and sometimes not so subtle, the disease of racism permeates and poisons a whole body politic. And I can see nothing more urgent and for America to work passionately and unrelentingly to get rid of the disease of racism. Something positive must be done. Everyone must share in the guilt as individuals and as institutions. The government must certainly share the guilt. Individuals must share the guilt. Even the church must share the guilt. We must face the sad fact at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand to sing, In Christ there is no east nor west. We stand in the most segregated hour of America. The hour has come for everybody and for all institutions, for the public sector and the private sector, to work to get rid of racism. Now, if we are to do it, we must honestly admit certain things and get rid of certain myths that have constantly been disseminated all over our nation. One is the myth of time. It is the notion that only time can solve the problem of racial injustice. And there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. 
Only time can solve the problem. And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray, in a hundred or two hundred years, the problem will work itself out. That is an answer to that myth. And it is that time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. I'm sorry to say this morning that I'm absolutely convinced that the forces of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists of our nation, the people on the wrong side, have used time much more effectively than the forces of goodwill. And it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. Now that is another myth that still gets around. It is a kind of over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. And there are those who still feel that if the Negro is to rise out of poverty, if the Negro is to rise out of slum conditions, if he is to rise out of discrimination and segregation, he must do it all by himself. And so they say the Negro must lift himself by his own bootstraps. They never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. The people who say this never stop to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. But beyond this, they never stop to realize the debt that they owe a people who were kept in slavery 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation being signed by Abraham Lincoln. He was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. It was something like keeping a person in prison for a number of years and suddenly, suddenly discovering that that person is not guilty of the crime for which he was convicted. And you just go up to him and say, now you are free. But you don't give him any bus fare to get to town. You don't give him any money to get some clothes to put on his back or to get on his feet again in life. Every code of jurisprudence would rise up against this. 
And yet this is the very thing that our nation did to the black man. It simply said, you're free. And it left them there penniless, illiterate, not knowing what to do. And the irony of it all is that at the same time that the nation failed to do anything for the black man, through an act of Congress, it was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, it provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, as the years unfolded, it provided low interest rates so that they could mechanize our farms. And to this day, Thousands of these very persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. And these are so often the very people who tell Negroes that they must lift themselves by their own bootstraps. It's all right to tell a man to lift himself by his own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps, we must come to see that the roots of racism are very deep in our country. And there must be something positive and massive in order to get rid of all of the effects of racism and the tragedies of racial injustice. Now, that is another thing closely related uh, to racism that I would like to mention as another challenge. We are challenged to rid our nation and the world of poverty. Like a monstrous octopus, uh, poverty spreads its nagging prehensile tentacles into hamlets and villages all over our world, two-thirds of the peoples of the world go to bed hungry at night. They are ill-housed, they are ill-nourished, they are shabbily clad. I've seen it in Latin America, I've seen it in Africa. I've seen this poverty in Asia. I remember some years ago, Mrs. King and I journeyed to that great country known as India. And I never will forget the experience. It was a marvelous experience to meet and talk with the great leaders of India, and to meet and talk with and speak to thousands and thousands of people all over that vast country. And these experiences will remain dear to me as long as the cords of memory shall lengthen. But I say to you this morning, my friends, there were those depressing moments. How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes evidences of millions of people going to bed hungry at night? How can one avoid being depressed 
when he sees with his own eyes God's children sleeping on the sidewalks at night. In Bombay, more than a million people sleep on the sidewalks every night. In Calcutta, more than 600,000 sleep on the sidewalks every night. They have no beds to sleep in. They have no houses to go in. How can one avoid being depressed when he discovers that out of India's population of more than 500 million people, some 480 million make an annual income of less than $90 a year, and most of them have never seen a doctor or dentist. As I noticed these things, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no, because the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India and every other nation. And I started thinking of the fact that we spend in America millions of dollars a day to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children all over the world who go to bed hungry at night. And maybe we spend far too much of our national budget establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. Not only do we see poverty abroad, I would remind you that in our own nation there are about 40 million people who are poverty-stricken. I have seen them here and there. I've seen them in the ghettos of the north, and I've seen them in the rural areas of the south. I've seen them in Appalachia. I've just been in the process of touring many areas of our country, and I must confess that in some situations I have literally found myself crying. I was in Marks, Mississippi the other day, which is in Quitman County, the poorest county in the United States. I tell you, I saw hundreds of little black boys and black girls walking the streets with no shoes to wear. I saw their mothers and their fathers trying to carry on a little Head Start program, but they had no money. The federal government hadn't funded them. They were trying to carry on, and they raised a little money here and there, trying to get a little food to feed the children, trying to teach them a little something. And I saw mothers and fathers who said to me, not only were they unemployed, but they didn't get any kind of Income, no old age pension, no welfare check or anything. I said, how do you live? And they say, well, we go around, go around to the neighbors and ask them for a little something. When the berry season comes, we pick berries. When the rabbit season comes, we hunt and catch a few rabbits. 
And that's about it. And I was in Newark and Harlem just this week. And I walked in to the homes of welfare mothers. I saw them in conditions, no, not with wall-to-wall carpet, but wall-to-wall rats and roaches. I stood in an apartment, and this welfare mother said to me, the landlord will not repair this place. I've been here two years, and he hadn't made a single repair. She pointed out her little boy, who was the victim of lead poisoning. She pointed out the walls with all of the ceiling falling through. She showed me the holes where the rats came in. She said, night after night, we have to stay awake to keep the rats and the roaches from getting to the children. I said, how much do you pay for this apartment? She said, $125. And I looked and I thought and said to myself, it isn't worth $60. Poor people are forced to pay more for less. Living in conditions day in and day out, where the whole area is constantly drained without being replenished, it becomes a kind of domestic colony. And the tragedy is so often these 40 million people are invisible because America is so affluent, so rich, because our expressways carry us Away from the ghetto, we don't see the poor. Jesus told a parable one day, and he reminded us that a man went to hell because he didn't see the poor. His name was Dives. He was a rich man. And there was a man by the name of Lazarus, who was a poor man, but not only was he poor, he was sick. Sores were all over his body. He was so weak that he could hardly move. But he managed to get to the gate of Dives every day, wanting just to have the crumbs that would fall from his table. Dives did nothing about it. And the parable ends saying... Dives went to hell, and there was a fixed gulf now between Lazarus and Dives. And that is nothing in that parable which says that Dives went to hell because he was rich. Jesus never made a universal indictment against all wealth. It is true that one day a rich young ruler came to him, and he advised him to sell all. But in that instance... Jesus was prescribing individual surgery and not setting forth a universal diagnosis. And if you will look at that parable with all of its symbolism, you will remember that a conversation took place between heaven and hell, and on the other end of that long-distance call between heaven and hell was Abraham in heaven, talking to Dives in hell. Now, Abraham was a very rich man. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that he was the richest man of his day. So it was not a rich man in hell talking with a poor man in heaven. 
It was a little millionaire in hell talking with a multimillionaire in heaven. Dives didn't go to hell because he was rich. Dives didn't realize that his wealth was his opportunity. It was his opportunity to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. Dives went to hell because he passed by Lazarus every day and he never really saw him. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from the final sermon of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., delivered at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. on Sunday of March 31st, 1968, uh, just four days uh, prior to his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, that will conclude uh, our program uh, for today. We're paying tribute around this 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., if you'd like to have uh, access to this program, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Newswire. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to the Pan-African Newswire at Pan African News. Dot blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you want to go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, go to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We're going to close out uh, with the music of uh, John Coltrane from the classic album entitled Ascension. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.